Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to, um, to Luke 15. And let's resume um, our look at this very famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, I'm going to read the whole thing again. I probably won't read it every time, but um, I, I, I read it the whole, all the way through last time. I'm going to do it one more time, then maybe we'll shorten it next week. Here we go. At verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all all he had and took a journey into a faraway country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to, the, to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, the the task that is assigned to the public speaker, so often, um, well, I guess fundamentally it is that he's seeking to connect with his audience. But to do that, so often the challenge to the public speaker is to take the complex and make it simple. Um, Public speaking kind of uh, rises or falls or succeeds or fails over over that, that challenge to take the complex and make it simple. This morning, I'm going to ignore that principle And what I'm going to do is try to take the simple and make it complex. Um, I want to introduce you to a new word. Um, The word is meta-narrative. It's one word, meta-narrative. M-E-T-A, narrative. Meta-narrative. Now, that is a word that's used by a whole lot of smart people. 
And, and if you will use it, um, you will really impress your Christian friends. Because really, only, only smart people use that word, meta-narrative. Um, and, 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 and I think it's used for the sole purpose of impressing one's audience. I know that's why I'm using it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but um, let me tell you what the word meta-narrative means. It simply means the big story, the, the overarching story, uh, the theme, if you will. Uh, I don't like that one, but that, I hope you, the meta narrative is the big story. Maybe the, the story behind the story. Something like that. Um, <clears throat> let me, let me, uh, uh, in the, Really smart people talk about the Bible's meta-narrative. And, and the Bible's meta-narrative has three component parts. Creation, uh, the fall or the entrance of sin, and then redemption. That is the Bible's meta-narrative. Creation, sin, fall, and redemption. Let me show it to you. It's, it's real simple. Um, if you want to look, it's in the front of your Bible. Um, you have um, Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Then you come to Genesis 3. First half of Genesis 3 has to do with the fall, the historic fall, the entrance of sin. And then the second half of Genesis 3 begins, and by the way, from the second half of Genesis 3 all the way to the end of the Bible, what you get is this third component part of the meta-narrative known as redemption. Um, there it is. There's the Bible's meta-narrative. Now, don't you feel smarter? I mean, aren't you glad you came today so that you can impress your Christian friends? What you have in the Bible is two chapters um, dedicated to creation. You have a half of a chapter dedicated to an explanation of what ruined the perfect creation. And then from the middle of chapter 3 onto the end of the Bible, you get this story that is told and retold over and over and over again about what God did to undo what sin did. That's the Bible's meta-narrative. Let me give you another example. Let me think. Oh, 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 I've got one. It's a parable. The parable of the prodigal son is another example, ladies and gentlemen, of the Bible's meta-narrative. Gang, um, you know the story. Here's how the story goes, the, the story of the prodigal son. It begins with this boy living in this, this idyllic setting with his fa at his father's house. You know, kind of like, like a garden 
And then this boy who was living in this garden-like experience chooses to sin. He chooses to rebel. And then he falls into a life of rebellion. But, though extremely wounded by the actions of the boy, the father goes to extremes to see to it that the son is restored and put back in the family like he had been before. Gang, the the parable of the prodigal son is a story about a boy who once lived in innocence, who then fell into sin, and then what the man of the parable did about the boy's sin. The Bible's meta-narrative fleshed out all over again in the parable of the prodigal son. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm suggesting to you that the parable of the prodigal son is a summation of the Bible's meta-narrative. You know, Steve Brown, uh, a name familiar to some of you, Steve Brown used to say this. He said, you know, the Bible doesn't say much. But what it does say, it says it over and over and over and over again. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. And so this theme that you see as early as Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is, is fleshed out all through the Bible. Right here in our parable. There it is again. Young boy living in innocence falls into sin and his father does these, goes to extremes to restore it. Creation, fall, redemption. That's it. And the Bible is going to tell you that story over and over and over again. Let's look at it in this parable. Guys, um, the parable, of course, opens with the prodigal son living at home and hating every minute of it. The first words that are recorded that come out of his mouth are the words, give me. Give me what is mine. And by the way, none of it was his. It was all the father's. But um, what he's saying, in essence, is, Father, uh, you are keeping from me what is rightly mine. Hey, guys, you do know, don't you, that that's what Satan said to Adam and Eve? Do you remember what he said in, in Genesis 3, 5? He said, you know, don't you? You know why God doesn't want you to eat of that tree. You know, don't you? <laughs> he knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to be as smart as he is, and you're going to be like God's. Why, why, why that God is keeping from you something that is rightly yours. 
Ooh, there's that Bible meta-narrative thing all over again. But in this culture, the culture of the New Testament, where family was everything, this request on the part of the, of the prodigal son is a radical contradiction of, of the most venerated tradition of that time. What he asks for in his request is tantamount to saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I, I want your things, but I don't want you. Though what I'm doing, says the prodigal son, I, 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 I is unheard of. I understand that. But nothing is worse than living with you. I want my independence from you. Give me my money and leave me alone. Because if it weren't for you, I'd be happy. I want to control my own life. And I want you out of it. Ooh. <laughs> That's pretty ugly, isn't it? You know what, guys? I would suggest to you that every one of us in this room, every one of us, at some time or the other, has said something similar to God as has the prodigal son. Maybe not verbally, but we said it in our choices. The, cho- the things that we chose. The father agrees, and the family scandal becomes public as the, uh, the estate is turned into cash and the money is split. And then the boy makes haste to get away from the father. You know, guys, somewhere, somehow, the prodigal has come to the conclusion that if I'm ever going to be happy, I'm going to have to throw off all these shackles of, of that father. Because to, to be happy, um, I'm going to have to go outside of the, the, the father's rules. I'm going to have to disobey all of those restrictions placed on me by him. I, I want to go to a place where he isn't where nobody knows his name, and I, I can be my own man. The prodigal son had uh, succumbed to the siren voices of the faraway country. And so have some of us. Oh, my friends, the hellish lies that we believe. And we first heard them by the whispers of the faraway country. 
let me let me uh, let me give you some examples. I married him because I thought he could make me happy, but he didn't. But there's this guy at the office. He really understands me. Or, um, oh heck, I, I just, I just want to have a good time, and 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 alcohol helps me have fun. Or, um, nobody gets hurt when I look at a little porn. Or, whatever it takes to make my kids happy, that's what I'm going to do. Or, nobody's going to tell me how to run my life. Hey guys, there's, there's a couple of things that you've got to keep in mind. I mean, you've got to rethink. Here's the first one. Sin is much broader than just doing a bad thing. That's, that's the way the Pharisees thought. Sin, guys, is, is trying to find myself in some other way than in a relationship to the Father. Guys, nice people, nice, respectable people, nice, respectable, religious people, they make that mistake all the time. As long as I don't do a bad thing, I'm okay. That's not so. Somebody put it like this. They said, sin is seeking a home where there is no home. Here's the other thing that you need to keep in mind. Or you need to rethink. Um, oh, I hope you could get this. Whenever I try to gain control of my life by distancing myself from the Father, I end up giving control of my life to something or someone else. I, I think it was Chesterton. Um, that said this, but it is profound. Listen, he said, when you refuse to worship this God, you don't worship nothing. You understand that? Oh, you're worshiping something. When you refuse to worship this God, you don't worship nothing. Oh, you worship something. And and it's that thing that 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 you're hoping that somehow will place a distance between you and this God. I left home to find home, and then I ended up with a life that's out of control and no home. Like the prodigal. Somebody told us 
of the joys of the faraway country. And we believe them. And, and, and many of us went over there and like the prodigal, we're soon sorry that we did. Guys, the, the parable doesn't tell us exactly how he spent the money. The elder brother says that he spent it on prostitutes. That's in verse 30. Um, maybe, maybe he did. And, and if you're a Pharisee this morning, you're outraged. You're indignant. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's, that's to miss the point. Um, the issue isn't prostitutes. The issue is, listen, the issue is distance. He sought to gain from the faraway country what only the Father could give him. Just like some of us. In fact, some of us are still over there in the faraway country. And if you are, the bedeviling thing is that it's fun. It's fun for a while. But only for a while. That affair, oh boy, it was fun for a while. The alcohol, the drugs, they, they really spiced up a party for me for a while. The porn, oh, it was so titillating for a while. Making lots and lots of money was so exciting for a while. I want to tell you a story. Um, I, I think I've told you that story before, but to tell this story this morning, I, I want you to grab a hymnal. A hymnal is this red book in the, in the back of your pews. For those of you who've never seen one of these, this is called a hymnal. Uh, it's red, and it's, it's really out of date, and, um, and you've never opened one before. Um, but I want you to turn to hymn number 457. Um, um, it's a song that we sing around here quite a bit. Uh, I, we love this song. My wife loves this song. I love this song. I think many of you love this song. But uh, if, you're, if you're at hymn number 457, look down in the bottom left-hand corner. Do you see the name Robert Robinson? Well, that's the, story. That's the man I want, to tell you, I want to tell you a story about him. That guy, him right there. I want to tell you a story about Robert Robinson. The guy wrote this, song, this hymn. Um, he, he was born in England about 250 years ago, and as a child, his son died, his father died, and, um, and his mother sent him to London to learn a trade, the trade of barbering. <laughs> but uh, while in London, he came under the very influential and charismatic preaching of a, of a man that many of us know and love, whose name was George Whitfield. And um, it, it, through the preaching of George Whitfield, Robinson was apparently converted. 
And he immediately began to talk about the ministry, wanting to go into the ministry. And so he began to study for the ministry and, and, uh, and, and, and entered uh, the ministry. And at the age of 25, um, was called as a pastor to the Baptist Church at Cambridge, where he enjoyed a, a good deal of success. Uh, you never know, but apparently the success uh, wasn't real good for this young man. And um, he, um, he, soon, he soon succumbed to a moral lapse, and ultimately he moved over to the faraway country. And as the years passed, um, no one really ever even remembered remembered Robert Robinson, who was once a preacher. Years later, um, he was making a trip by stagecoach, and uh, he happened to be sitting next to a woman who was reading a, a book with just obvious pleasure. And she seemed to be particularly interested in, partic- in one particular page of this book because she kept turning back to it and back to it and back to it. And um, finally, she, she turned to Robinson, who was a complete stranger to her, and um, she held up a page towards him. And she pointed out that the hymn that was contained on that page um, uh, was just a wonderful hymn, asked him to read it, and, and um, asked him what he thought about it. And so Robert Robinson began to read, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace, streams of mercy never cease, call for souls. He stopped reading. He turned his head away and he tried to he tried to distract the woman by pointing out the, the, the passing landscape. But this woman was not to be denied. And she, began to, she continued to tell him of the great benefit that, this, that, this, that she had received from the words of this hymn and, 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 and expressed over and over again her, her admiration for this wonderful hymn. And, and Robert Robinson at that point, overcome with emotion, burst into tears and he says, Madam! I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to return to that place of peace. Robert Robinson was... um, older now and was light years away from his earlier religious involvement. And oh, how ironic it is that at the end of his hymn, he seemed to prophesy his own downward spiral. He said, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. 
Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave, prone to leave, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Robinson, like the prodigal son, was enticed away from the father's house by the joys of the faraway country. And so he went. And apparently he stayed. And what we're told is that He died at the young age of 55, a victim of the lure of the faraway country. He he had put some distance between him and the father, and he died a dirty old man. You know, guys, some of us went to the faraway country and, and we still bear the scars. But, but bless God, there are only scars. Some of us are still there presently. And then there's others of us who are dreaming of the day that I can race off and live any old way I want to. C.S. Lewis, the ever-quotable C.S. Lewis, he said this, Hell is a monument to man's freedom. You get that? Hell is a monument to man's freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, to the prodigals, in this audience. The message of this parable is this. Come home. Come home. But to others of us in this audience, ladies and gentlemen, there's, there's a different message Um, you see, this parable is not only an invitation to come home. It's It's a warning. It's a warning about our proneness to wander. 
Let me tell you another story real quickly, but you don't need to turn there. If, you, if you'd like to later in the day, it's Second uh, Chronicles 11 and 12. I've got to tell you this real quick. But it's a, it's a story about a guy by the name of Rehoboam. You remember, David was the great king of Israel, and he died, and his son takes over. His name is Solomon. Then Solomon, died. Solomon built the temple. Solomon died. And so he, gives the, he turns the kingdom of Israel over to Rehoboam. Rehoboam gets in this huge spat with a guy by the name of Jeroboam, and ten of the tribes go north, and they become a different nation under Jeroboam. Rehoboam has still got two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And it says in 2 Corinthians 11, they strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and for three years they made Rehoboam the son of Solomon secure, for they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. Oh, way to go, guys. You're doing great over there. Then you turn to chapter 12. Listen. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. You know what God does? He raises up a king. His name is Shishak. Shishak is from Egypt. Shishak brings his army to Israel and defeats Israel or Judah, the southern kingdom. And so then God sends a prophet. It's all in 2, Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 12. He sends a prophet by the name of Shemaiah. And he says, go tell Rehoboam this. Go tell him, you abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. That's verse 5. And so the people of Israel say, oh my gosh, what have we done? So they humble themselves and repent, et cetera, et cetera. So God sends Shemaiah back to say this. Listen. Tell them this. They have humbled themselves and I will not destroy them. But I will grant them some deliverance and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him. that they may know the difference in serving me and serving the kings of the other countries. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, God can be counted on to restore the wanderer. Yes. But as some of us can tell you, the consequences of the wandering are sometimes unthinkable. For instance, I could have an affair. I could go out and commit adultery. And were I to repent and humble, God would restore me too. Adultery is not an unpardonable sin. But do you know how many families would be wrecked by my proneness to wander? This parable is not only an invitation to the prodigal to come home. 
It's a warning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a warning to us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that everything that we need for life and godliness has been provided to us. And one of the big parts of that provision is your church. Not the only part, but is your church. Everything that I think the soul needs to flourish is available to you at this church. And if you wonder, don't blame your church. But oh, my brother and sister in Christ, Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will uh, use the uh, experience of the younger son in the parable to remind us of just how prone we are to wander and just how devastating our wanderings can be. But Lord God, for others, for others who are still in the faraway country, would you, would you, would you prompt them? Would you stir them? Would you show them? that they must, they must come home. Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake.